Good morning, everybody. My name is Jenny. I'm the interim rector here at Emmanuel, um, and it's really good to be with you this morning. I'm excited about our text, which I'll read in a moment. First, I want to update you on our Jubilee Council. Uh, If you're unfamiliar, the Jubilee Council is a task force uh, that we've gathered together with people throughout uh, our congregation and our church uh, to help us become a place where people of all races are included and celebrated and empowered to shape the ethos and direction of Emmanuel. We're building off of two years of work that we've been doing internally to sort of like build up to this moment so it doesn't just, um, you know, kind of land out in the universe and we don't know what to do with it. Um, we want to make real change within our church, and so this is sort of the next, the next step for us. Uh, this council is made up of the most wonderful men and women of our church. Uh, every time I, I watch them gathering together, it just feels really good and powerful. And um, they've met so far twice for this, this first sort of initial six-month process. And uh, the first meeting was them getting together, talking about what it will look like, kind of do all of this together, to be on a team that's attempting to sort of make these kinds of changes and really listen for the voice of God and how things need to move forward in the life of our church. And then last Sunday they had their second meeting where they began the work of what they're going to do over the next six months, which is uh, talking through the different portions of ministries in our church and asking questions about those things. You know, uh, how are they living up to the vision of Emmanuel and the vision of the Jubilee Council? How are they um, inclusive or not inclusive? Um, How can we be able to uh, live more in alignment with maybe with what God's asking us to do. So this past Sunday, it was worship and liturgy, and they had some, some good, robust conversations, and I'm just really excited to see where this, where this council takes us within our church. This is just a time for us to remind you all. You know, a lot of times at churches, uh, just like any organization, things are kind of happening behind the scenes, and any time that we can update you on what's going on behind the scenes, especially when it's important work like this, uh, we want to, in, to invite you in, especially within sort of this space where I'm able to speak to you now um, to, to say, you know, this is really good work and you all need to know about it and to be celebrating it and supporting it. So um, you can just continue to pray for this council over the next six months and we'll, we'll continue to update you on what's going on uh, with them and how uh, things are going to get played out in the life of our church. We're really excited for what's ahead for this team and for us. All right, let's read our text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 this morning. Zacchaeus. Anybody excited? All right. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. And all who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, Half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. 
I'm really excited about this text because we've all sort of been on this journey together through the Gospel of Luke. If you've been here over the last weeks and months, uh, we've been in particular in a section of Luke that's called the, the Journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus has several chapters ago set his face towards Jerusalem, and out of that came a lot of teaching, a lot of healing that sort of reveals the heart of Jesus' ministry, the heart of what it is that he came to do. And a lot of, frankly, surprising things, I think. Uh, there's a lot of surprise that happens within the life of Jesus, but especially in this gospel, Luke's gospel. So we've learned to be surprised by the generosity of Jesus. And we have learned to be surprised about how invested Jesus is in justice. And in, in particular, justice for the oppressed. So the story of Zacchaeus that we have here today, the chief tax collector and his salvation is sort of the cherry on top of the surprise of all the sort of wildness of what it means for Jesus, the Son of God, to come into the world and to enact his salvation and his justice within the world. One theologian says, Luke pulls the rug from under every cliche, every formula by which people's status before God might be calculated. So we come today, you and me, to this text, willing to be surprised, as we have been for, for the last several months. If we've learned anything from Luke, it's that we should always expect to learn something new about who Jesus is, uh, to be surprised by him, to, be, um, to, to see something that he's doing in our lives, in particular, I think, in the, in the scriptures, um, and to see it in a new way, and to not be surprised or thrown off by that. And that's not because um, Jesus is inconsistent or changing, but because we are. And so when we come to this text, you know, especially a text like this, Zacchaeus, if you still see Jesus as the same kind of person that you saw when you were in fourth grade when you heard about this story for the first time, probably not great. So what I'm asking you today is just be willing to kind of see this text in a new way, to come open to what Jesus might want to do to surprise us this morning. So speaking of which, I think when we just focus on this being about a small man climbing trees, um, we miss some really important things. So... Um, I was about to open back up the Bible and reaffirm it again. Let's talk about what's going on in the, behind the scenes of this story, in particular the economic situation. Now, I think this is helpful for this, this text, obviously, but also this is just the economic background of what's happening in the Gospels in general. And I think especially as we move towards Advent and we move into these like four weeks of what we call like darkness, this dark space together as we wait for the, for the Messiah to be born on Christmas Day, why is it dark? A lot of us are like ready to celebrate Christmas as soon as, well, as soon as maybe after the day after tomorrow happens. Um, but some of us even, you know, wait, wait, are classy enough to wait till Thanksgiving. Um, but then the church asks you to wait even longer and to sort of move into the darkness and maybe not celebrate the light yet. And that's because of how dark things were for God's people when they were waiting for the Messiah. And so in solidarity with them, we want to come alongside them and imagine what that was like so that on Christmas morning we can be that excited. We can be like that invested, that desperate for that morning to come. So here's what's going on in the world at this time. So Jewish people are living under the power and authority of the Roman government. And the tax burden of living in the Roman Empire was placed on the poorest members of society, largely in land taxes. So these are the people who are doing sort of the, the core work of, of, of the land. And this was God's people. This was the Jewish people. This was in large part 
um, a large part of the injustice of living under the Roman rule, that all the taxation was placed on the poorest members of society. It's also one of the reasons why the Jewish people thought when the Messiah came, he would conquer the Roman Empire, right? So if you're loving, living under this terrible economic oppression and rule by someone, and your God has promised you for hundreds of years that someone would come to rescue you and be your king, that would obviously mean a takeover, a government takeover, right? So when they're waiting for the Messiah to come, this is what they're thinking about. Of course, the Messiah would bring justice, and he did, just not in the ways that they expected. So this is what's happening in the world at the time. And it's not just that, though. It's not just like the political system, but it's also outright exploitation and extortion. That there was constantly sort of general threats of violence and extortion in a world where these people had no political power. If they were, um, you know, threatened and had to give money to a tax collector, for instance, and they decided to take this tax collector to court, there's no way that they would win if they even had the money to take them to court. Um, There was just no hope. If someone threatened you and required, required money of you, you had to give it. Um, so this is the world that they, were, that they were living in. God's people were living in un- incredibly unjust, exploitative, oppressive rule. And frankly, there was like no hope of coming out of it anytime soon until maybe the Messiah came. And then we have people like Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, which means it's a very complicated uh, thing for these people because tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for and with the Roman government. And this is where you say, Bill to collect these taxes that were unbearable burdens for God's people. So they were sons of Abraham. You know, they were, uh, they were Jewish people living in Jewish society, but they were also working for the enemy with their power. And what do we learn about Zacchaeus? He's not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, right? A chief extorter, you could even say. Um, he could be sort of equated in one way to like a drug lord who um, extracts profits from the common tax collectors that he supervised. Um, also could be likened to a white-collar criminal um, profiting from a system that ensured the rich would get richer and the poor would get poorer. Uh, so did God's people like tax collectors? No. When we approach this text, do we like Zacchaeus? No. We like him because he's small. <laughs> and he climbs trees. But that's not the whole story, as we just learned. So that's where the crowd is. When it says the crowd was not happy about what happens between Zacchaeus and Jesus, you know why. It would be infuriating. Did y'all watch um, Dope Sick? Did y'all watch that TV show? It's like a show about the, the opioid crisis and the, the family that sort of started the opioid crisis, the Sacklers. And I've imagined all week what it would, if, if um, Zacchaeus was Richard Sackler climbing up into this tree because I want to be as mad. You know, I want to be, I want to like put myself in these shoes of, of someone who has done incredible injustice to people in our country, in our world. And that's kind of like the place I've had my mind in all week. Um, as I think about Jesus calling Zacchaeus down, that's where this crowd was. They hate him. And rightfully so, you know. His richness was a visible sign of their powerlessness, of their money getting spent by someone else. So when the text says on account of the crowd, he could not see Jesus, that's likely not just due to the fact that he was short. He was likely boxed out of the crowd. 
So we had a, like a twofold problem happening when it came to seeing Jesus. He was already a small person, um, but then also the crowd had a very easy time boxing him out and not allowing him to get close, close to see Jesus. The text says they grumble when they see Jesus go to Zacchaeus' house, which I think is a very polite way of saying maybe what was happening at the time. Grumbling in the Old Testament uh, is when the people's expectations are not met by God, and the same thing's happening here. When Jesus' mission runs counter to the expected social norms, we get a people who are grumbling. So what are the expected social norms? That the Messiah would come for the righteous, the ones who've lived well, the oppressed, the poor, the people he said he would come for, the ones who are above reproach. And yet, maybe these people have not heard the good news, that Jesus came to be a friend to tax, collector, tax collectors and sinners, as it says in chapter 7. In fact, Luke talks over and over about how Jesus stuns and angers crowds by offering himself to tax collectors. That would be infuriating. I would be mad. They don't know yet. But for Jesus, no one is beyond redemption, not even Zacchaeus. So let's look at what happens between Jesus and Zacchaeus because I think there's a lot that happens in their, their small encounter uh, that, that God wants to say to us this morning. Did you hear me swallow? So sorry. It's so gross. All right, so Zacchaeus goes to see Jesus but can't see him because of the crowd. So he does what was very likely a humiliating thing and climbs up in a tree so that he can see Jesus. And then what happens? Who ends up getting seen? Zacchaeus does. He's the one looking for Jesus, and he's the one who ends up being seen. And Jesus calls up to Zacchaeus passing by him in the tree, and he's like, come down, Zacchaeus. There are some Bible moments that I just really wish I was there for, and this is one of them, to like encounter Jesus like calling this man down out of the tree. And he seems like maybe he doesn't have a lot of dignity, so he probably did it really fast. I imagine him like falling out of it a little bit, just overly excited to see Jesus. And by calling Zacchaeus by name, what Jesus does is he signifies that he knows who he is. He knows his vocation. He knows what he's done. He knows all the things about Zacchaeus that would make Zacchaeus maybe not want to be known. Nothing was unseen by Jesus. He saw everything. And he met Zacchaeus right where he was. And even better, he calls Zacchaeus unto himself. He calls him in even closer uh, to himself in that moment. And then also says, I want to go to your space, Zacchaeus. Let's go to your house. Let's bring some dignity to your space. So what made Zacchaeus worthy of this interaction with Jesus? Why did Jesus pay attention to him? I think the desperation with which Zacchaeus sought Jesus drew Jesus to himself. And I really do think that Jesus can do anything with anyone. Like, Jesus is all-powerful. He can, um, you know, go across any barrier. And yet I think our disinterest in him is not something that he, like, moves through like a wrecking ball. When we're disinterested, there isn't a whole lot of pushback from Jesus. And so when Zacchaeus does all of these things to attempt to see him, there's no way Jesus can't acknowledge it. He loves our desperateness for him. It makes me think about that story of the bleeding woman, which I think was preached on last week when I was out, um, who, you know, Jesus is walking through this crowd, and there's people everywhere, probably bumping into people constantly. But this woman who's seeking healing uh, like kind of like sneaks up behind him and just grabs his robe because she really believes that she will be healed if she touches him. 
And she grabs it, and Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. someone touched me. And his disciples are like, everyone has touched you. Uh, what, are you what are you looking for? He says, no, like my power has gone out of me. Someone desperate has touched me. And I think that's exactly what's happening in this situation with Zacchaeus. Someone desperate is looking for me. And so, of course, Jesus' eyes lock with him. He sees him. He moves towards him. He invites him into his space. Jesus just can't miss that. So how does a chief tax collector, a white-collar criminal, an extortionist, get the exclusive attention and ultimately salvation of Jesus Christ? He's desperate for him. Which begs the question for all of us, you know, how desperate are we for Jesus? What trees are you climbing in to see him, as it were? What risks are you taking to put yourself in his presence? How much do you really need Jesus? There are seasons of life where we get in situations that are desperate naturally. And so therefore we find that sort of desperateness for Jesus kind of like overflows in us. But when we are not in seasons like that or we've learned to sort of live on autopilot or things are just sort of working out for us, we don't feel it as much. So how do we become the kinds of people who constantly are aware of this desperateness for Jesus and we're constantly moving ourselves into spaces where we can see him and be seen by him, to be in relationship with him, cultivate desperateness for Jesus. Sort of, you know, come to church and be ready to be met by the presence of the living God on Sundays who are open to maybe that the spirit is doing something very real and very powerful in your life who are aware enough of our sins every week that we sort of long for this moment of confession within church and absolution, that we are like coming to this table, almost running to it when it's time to take communion. Like that kind of desperateness for Jesus. It's what we're meant to have. So I want to suggest two ways of coming into this sort of desperateness that I think God wants us to be in with him kind of desperateness that would like move a person into a tree, you know. And the first thing is to get in proximity with someone who is suffering. This may be someone that you know personally, someone you know well, or maybe it's a group of people, an organization that you can work with, something like that. Um, and maybe it's you. Maybe it's coming to terms with your own suffering, identifying that you are suffering and you are actually desperate. If we are not close to the parts of the world, the souls who are like desperately in need of Jesus, and we sort of live in this space where everything is taken care of all the time, that feeling of like even Zacchaeus who had everything he probably needed, he was aware enough to know how desperate he was to meet the Lord. You don't have to give everything away in order to feel your own desperateness, but you do need to put yourself into a space where you see how much the world actually needs Jesus. That this, it's not optional that he's, he comes to be the king of his kingdom. And the second thing is regular confession of sins. And this can be to God, obviously. Um, but there's something really powerful about confessing to another person. Have you ever confessed your sins to another person? Those of you who maybe were former Catholics are like, yes, I have. Um, it's really powerful. One of the gifts that I get to have as, uh, as a priest is, like, that's one of the things I'm supposed to do for the church 
is to hear confessions and then speak the absolution over people. Not because I hold God's forgiveness in any kind of way, but because it is so powerful to receive the, an absolution from someone uh, who can speak on behalf of God, who can like hold your hand on behalf of God and speak these things to you in real life. Um, we should be doing this all the time. Not with me, I mean. I mean, you can do it with me. It's part of my job. Um, but with each other. To receive the forgiveness of God from another human being, there's just nothing better. So those are the two suggestions I have for cultivating a sort of desperateness for Jesus. And speaking of confession, we're going to move into this last part of the text, uh, Zacchaeus' repentance and what it looks like. So not only was his soul in need of Jesus and he knew it and lived like it, he was also ready to do the work of repentance and restitution, signs of true encounters with the living God. We often confuse, I think, confession and repentance. It's really like a two-step process. Um, when you confess something, it's when you state it out loud. You say, like, this is what has been done. This is what I have done. And when you repent, uh, biblically, what that means is that a, a change has been made. A visible sort of like 180 degree shift has happened in your life and that there is uh, evidence of it as well. Confession is the first part, certainly, but repentance comes after. Ooh, the little spider <laughs> on the Bible. Repentance is not just a change of heart, but restoration, making amends. Repentance bears fruit, the Bible tells us. So, for example, on Sundays, we pray the confession. We receive the absolution, and then what do we do with one another? We pass the peace as a symbolic and visible sign that something has happened in confession that now can be lived out in the world with our brothers and sisters. We do it every single week so that you and I can go live that way out in the world. That what I confess before God and when I have peace with God, there's a power that comes from that that then like leaks out of me into the world around me. It makes me bear fruits worthy of my repentance, right? Gilliard says um, in his book, which I don't have up here, uh, Subversive Witnessing, there's a copy in the, um, in the atrium that you can purchase if you'd like. He says, we are spiritually mature enough to soberly assess our sins and the collective impact they've had on our neighbors. The spirit leads us to discern what true reconciliation requires which is exactly what happens to Zacchaeus. The text says, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. He's bearing fruits worthy of repentance. You see it? All right, you ready to do a little bit of Bible study? All right, so we're going to go to Luke 3, and then we're going to jump back to the Old Testament, and we're going to come back to our text. So John the Baptist is baptizing people in the wilderness, all kinds of people, Pharisees, tax collectors, people like you and me, everybody's coming out to be baptized. And John the Baptist is like, I will baptize you, but just so that you know, this doesn't mean anything unless you bear fruits worthy of repentance. He says, uh, he calls, you know, talks about sons of Abraham, which happens in the, our text as well. Um, he says, uh, don't think that just because you're a son of Abraham that salvation has come to you. God can make rocks sons of Abraham. So the people respond and they say, what then should we do? And he says, how do we bear fruits worthy of our repentance? He says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. 
even tax collectors. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he says to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats of false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. For John, the fruit of repentance was social, collective, and justice-oriented. You had a personal experience, life change with God in your baptism, and then everything else gets lived out in the world through your life into the people of God. It had everything to do with taking care of your neighbor, especially if you committed injustice against your neighbor. Because our sins don't just affect us. Our sins affect our entire community, always. Even if they feel secretive, these things never stay secret. They come out. They live into our communities. And John the Baptist is asking us to see that and then to make amends for it, to recognize it, and to move forward. So then we have Zacchaeus' economic restitution. There is biblical precedent for this kind of response. Put on your nerd hats. Let's go. Let's go to the Old Testament. So you have two kinds of restitution in the Old Testament, voluntary and compulsory. So voluntary is like what Zacchaeus is doing in this moment. Um, And what would happen, according to Leviticus and Numbers, is that if you were voluntarily giving economic restitution, you gave back, (coughs) excuse me, the original amount plus 20%. If it was compulsory restitution, it called for doubling of the original amount. So the beautiful thing about Zacchaeus, how much does he give back? Four times, four times, which is extravagant numbers, kingdom numbers, you might say. This kind of thing could only happen in light of who Jesus is and what he calls us into. Double would have been extravagant because he was doing voluntary restitution, and he decides he will give back four times as much. That's what his encounter with Jesus has done to him. Gilead again says, as Jesus chose to bind himself to Zacchaeus in relationship, Zacchaeus had to reconcile himself to God and neighbor by choosing to bind himself to those he stole from by offering restitution for his sins. Jesus becomes bound to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus bound to Jesus, and that has a social um, meaning for Zacchaeus. There is no having a personal salvation that does not affect the world around him, that does not repent for what he has already done to his community, does not give back to the world. So my point in saying all of this is that when we have real encounters with Jesus, when the gospel truly starts to affect our lives and our worldview, we can truly begin to ask what it means for God's kingdom to come. Social and economic justice, friends, are not threats to the gospel. They are the fruit of it. We ought not be afraid of the term social justice. It's all throughout your Bible. It's what Jesus came to do in the world. It is the fruit of our repentance is that it means something, not just for us and not just for our families, but it means something for our cities, for our country, for our world. And we can argue all day about what it should look like. I'm not saying it has to look a certain way. But these are fruits worthy of our repentance. Did Zacchaeus sell everything he had and live in poverty? No. Did he make his whole life about taking out other chief tax collectors and fighting against extortion? I would argue probably not. We don't know. He probably did what John the Baptist told him to do, which is if you have extra, share it. 
Don't collect taxes uh, more than is owed. And if you have power, don't use it against people. That's probably the life he intended to live out from there on out. <coughs> Excuse me. So what we have in this text then is such a beautiful, holistic picture, I think, of what it means to follow Jesus. A culmination of all of the stories he's been telling, of all the teaching he's been doing on his journey towards the cross. To have an incredibly personal and beautiful relationship with him. That our salvation with him is personal and it is incredible. And he calls you by name and knows exactly who you are and what you have done. And he calls you into life with him nonetheless. I think about Zacchaeus living in this, what probably was an extravagant home because of all the money that he had. And Jesus walking right into what was like spiritually his, his greatest shame. Walked right into it and like ate dinner there with him. Had table fellowship with him. There is nothing in your life that is too shameful for Jesus to just walk right into. And that it doesn't end there. That this personal relationship, this personal salvation is for the world. is for the people God loves. It's through you and in you and out into the world that God loves. That we could take on the responsibilities of what it means to care for the marginalized and the forgotten. That our personal salvation literally frees us up to be more generous. And that our personal salvation is actually tied up in each other's. I can't be free as long as you're not. That's what Jesus tells us. That's what our baptism tells us. Jesus will forever call up into, into our trees and invite us into life with him. That's just who he is. And the fruit that grows out of those encounters and a life lived with him are for the world. So that others can experience the fruit of a life that's been saved by Jesus Christ. I wonder what it would look like for us to all have those sort of kingdom numbers, you know. For double to be extravagant, for us to say, no, 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 four times, four times as much. What if your life looked like four times as much because of Jesus and the work he has done in your life? How desperate you've been for him and how faithful he's been in meeting with you and then how that goes out into the world. Amen? Amen.